am the campus pastor at our um, Plano campus, and I'm, I'm super pumped to be here uh, this morning. I was part of this church uh, a while ago, a long time ago. Can you believe it's been five years since this church sent its best and brightest for the work in Plano? And uh, I'm super pumped and excited to be back. And Pastor Tim is at uh, Plano preaching this morning. And we get to switch. And he's preaching on Judas. And I get to preach on John. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful how it worked out for me to preach John to you guys. John is called uh, the disciple of love or the beloved disciple. The reason why he's called that, and, and you can help me out a little bit, because John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, uh, and he really is that disciple. He writes about love like crazy. In the Gospel of John, he mentions the word love 60 times. And um, that's more than the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, combined talk about love. And then in the little letter of 1 John, you can read it in four or five minutes, he mentions love 50 times. And so it's really an incredible thing um, that we get to experience today. I want to talk about God's love with you. Uh, from John's perspective, from John's life, from John's uh, writings, he wrote uh, much of the New Testament. He's number three in how much he wrote. Uh, anybody tell me who wrote most of the two-thirds of the New Testament? Paul. And then, who, this is a little harder, who wrote the second most uh, in, the, in, in the New Testament? Luke. And then we have John. John writes, uh, John, first, second, third John, and what else? Revelation. And so we're going to look at all of that uh, today in the time that we have together. And I've been praying um, that God would change you. To be quite honest, I've been praying that God would change me. And that God would change you. That God would change us as we come and experience um, his great love for us. So God is in the life change business. And uh, he does change. He wants to change you. Here's the big idea. You'll see it in your notes. The main thrust of today's message is this. The love of God can change your life forever. It really can. And we're going to talk about how that happens. Um, God saves people, and then he changes people. He doesn't just save people and leave us the way that you are. He, he loves you the way that you are. That's a great thing. You came in here today, and maybe you were far from God. You've drifted far from God. You're involved in things that you shouldn't be involved in. Do you know God loves you just the way that you are? He, he loves you before you clean yourself up. He loves you before you do a good job. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means... Christ died for us when we were lost in our sin and far from God, just the way that we are. But then when God saves us, when we come into a relationship with God, when we trust in Jesus, he loves us too much to leave us the way that we are, and he begins to change us and do a work in our life. That's reflected in our three D's of discipleship here at Village. And I quizzed my campus Last week, they got it on right, right away. So there's no pressure for you guys. But let's see if you know the three Ds of discipleship. The first one is discover. That we would be discovering disciples as a church, that uh, people would be discovering Jesus. And then after you discover Jesus, the second D is 
Develop. A little weak on that one. Develop. That's okay, because that's the topic today, is, a, is developing and growing and changing, that God would change us and grow us, and we'd be a different person, a different Christian than we were a year ago. And then a year from now, we'd be a different person than we are today. So that we can do the third D, which is deploy. So we can go out and do the work that God has created us to do, that we could use our spiritual gifts in the life of his kingdom and his ministry. Just curious here, how many people, show of hands, volunteer in some way here at Village? Raise your hand. Uh, lots of you do. That's great. And so you're using your spiritual gifts, the talents that God has given you, to do work. You're being deployed. And... Um, now, part of this development happens as a Christian. We are called to participate in it. We don't do anything to save ourselves, but then when we're saved, we have to participate with God in our, the big word is uh, sanctification, becoming more holy. And, and we have to work with God. We have to make decisions. It doesn't just happen automatically. We've got to be involved in uh, our life change. Um, dream experts tell us that there are two main types of dreams. Uh, the first type of dream is one, it's the typical dream, um, that you just are there, wherever there is, and you are experiencing the dream. You have no control over it. You are just going through the motions and experiencing and seeing the things that are happening in the dream. And uh, this past week I had a dream that I was here, and I was in the lobby, and it was about ready, the song was getting done, and it was time for me to go up, and I didn't have any sermon notes. I had my Bible, and I didn't know, what, what am I going to preach on? I can't believe it. I, I, I thought I had an outline. And Phil, Pastor Phil, was putting my microphone on, my, on me, and he's like, you got 30 seconds. I'm like, what am I going to do? And, um, and I had no choice in that, right? That's one kind of dream. There's another kind of dream, though, that sleep experts say, and maybe you've had them. It's called a, a lucid dream. A lucid dream is where you participate in the dream. You actually make choices in the dream. Sometimes you know that it is a dream, and you can choose to do whatever you want in that dream. You want to jump off a building and fly? You can do that, and you can fly. How many people have dreams that you can fly? That's a pretty cool dream, right? And, and, and you are actually making decisions in that. That's the type of life that God calls us to as a Christian. It's not the passive life that we just believe in Jesus and then go about life and whatever happens, happens. No, it's that we believe in Christ and we have our affections changed because we know that he loves us because he died for us. And therefore, we begin to make decisions to live for him, to make choices, to grow up in our faith and to become more mature. Now, um, this doesn't happen overnight, okay? It's not perfection, it's, it's growth. Um, this past week, we had all of our vehicles in our family break down, okay? And, um, and we have two vehicles, my son has one vehicle, all of them went down, and it was a very frustrating week, okay? And, uh, and, and I know most of the world doesn't have one car, okay? So I know we're first world problems, right? But... Um, Last night, I was putting a battery into our minivan, and I didn't have the correct tools to use to put the battery in, and I was getting frustrated. And just to be honest with you, I didn't feel very pastoral when I was putting that battery in. And not even pastoral, I didn't very, feel very Christian when I was putting that uh, battery in. But then I remembered the quote that I was going to share with you today, and it made me smile, even through my anger. Uh, an old Southern Baptist preacher used to say, uh, before coming to Christ, I used to cuss at the drop of a hat, but since coming to Christ, it takes a lot longer than that. 
And, uh, and that's what it is to be a Christian, okay? God's grace is awesome, and he, he gives us second chances, and he helps us up. But the, but the question is, are we moving onward and upward to become more like Jesus, to grow up in our faith? So let's start here. Number one, God's love changes the way that you live. God's love changes the way that you live. Now, it changed John's life big time. Look at chap- Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, Jesus is calling his disciples, the first disciples. And let's start at verse 15. Verse 16. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to which he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. So he calls Peter, he calls James, older brother of John, and he calls him this name Bonerges. It's translated sons of thunder. The Hebrew word that you get from Bonerges, the word is where we get our English word rage, rage. And so the the literal translation is someone who is filled with rage, a fiery disposition, uh, um, a fired up preacher, but not always with the right intentions, okay? Sons of thunder. That's who John is. Now we see in the Gospels descriptions of this son of thunder that I want to show you. Because we got to get what John is like. Luke chapter 9, flip over there. Three different scenes right in a row, which really paint a beautiful picture of uh, who John is, and you'll see. Verse 46 of Luke 9. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. Another gospel says Jesus comes in while they're arguing and they all get quiet. Like, Jesus is here. You ever done that, by the way? You walk into a room and somebody's been talking about you and all of a sudden they're quiet? That's what happened with the disciples. Look at verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now you say, well, John's not listed here. It just says it's among the disciples. And I said, well, I'm willing to bet that John is right in the mix of this because in another story in the Gospels, we read that his mom, Salome, goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, for James and John, can you have one sit on your right hand in the kingdom and one sit on your left hand? And she wants her boys to be part of the power structure. So If you're asking me, I'm willing to bet that John and James are right in the middle of this argument with the twelve. Now the next picture, John is the one that actually is speaking. Look at verse 49. John answered, "Um, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried... Hold on a second. Let me try to read it like him. John answered, Master... We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. John's fired up. Here's some other person doing what they do, and he's not on team Jesus. Jesus, you want me to take him out? Now, that was my translation, that last little piece. 
Um, but I think I can hear him saying that because the little last story shows him doing just that. Look at verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciple named disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call, call fire down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Man, I know that he would take out the one guy, because here he's saying to Jesus, let's take down the whole town, right? Son of thunder, he's fired up, he's filled with rage. Now, how do we go from this picture of John to the way John writes the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and in the book of Revelation? In 1st John chapter 4, um, we read these verses. John became a song. Do you, do you remember the song? I'll try to sing it. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God. Do you know this song? Yeah. Um, that's John. Man, that's a loving 1970s music, right? And uh, can't we love each other? So what happened to John that he spoke of the love of God and how we can experience it and how we can share it with others than from the picture we just see, we just saw in the Gospels? Here's the answer. He was with Jesus. He was with Jesus. He was at the cross. All the other disciples left in John chapter 19. Uh, John is there. John is there when Jesus is having the nails driven through his hands and feet. And, and Jesus is calling out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you think John was thinking, Father, forgive them? Or was he thinking, it's time to get the fire thing going? My best friend, my Messiah, my Lord is dying. Why isn't he calling down the fire from heaven? He could have called 10,000 angels, the old hymn writer would say. But he didn't. Jesus died for the sin of the people. And John saw it. Greater love has no one than this than a man lay down his life for his friends, Jesus said. And, and uh, John saw Jesus do it. The key to being changed, the way that we live, is to have an encounter with Christ. Now, here's the first application. Some of you need to come to faith in Christ and believe for yourself. You come to church, but maybe you come because your kids want you, or your wife wants you to. Um, you, you know, um, you're familiar with it, but you, if you're honest, you, you've never taken that step of faith yourself. You've got some questions, you've got some doubts, and you've never taking that step to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to come today to believe that Jesus died in your place. John says this in um, 1 John 4, 7, and 8, just the part that I sang um, right after that, verse 9 and 10. Um, listen, here's what he says. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus came out of love from God to fix our sin problem. 
And he paid for our sin on the cross. He died in our place so that you wouldn't have to pay for your sin, that you wouldn't have to die, that you could have eternal life. You could have a relationship with God. You could be right with God for all of eternity, not on the basis of your love for Jesus or your love for God, but on the basis of his love for you. And it's demonstrated on the cross. Believe in that today. Believe in Jesus. You don't have to have perfect faith. You can still have questions. You can still have doubt. But you yourself, not anybody else, you're not going to make it to heaven on the coattails of your godly grandparents. You're not going to make it to heaven on the basis of your parents or children. It's what do you do with the risen, alive Savior Jesus. Now, the second group of people, some others, you have to be real with yourself. You've called yourself a Christian. You know the right words to say, even the correct prayers to pray, if there is such a thing. But it's time to make a decision to live it out. To live it out. 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, John tells us this, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Anybody can speak the, the game, but who can actually do it? Anybody can say they love their spouse, but how do you prove it in the way that you live? Anybody can say, I'm a Christian, but it, it, it actually is proven by the way that you live. And you need to be honest, and you need to come to a place where you embrace the change of life that Jesus calls you to. Now you say, well, Pastor Steve, I get that, but how do I practically do that? I mean, I, I've asked Jesus into my life. I believe in him, but I, I still am struggling with the same sins and, and addictions, and there's things that are weighing on me heavily, and I can't seem to get past it. I can't seem to change. And so let me just give you four practical things, steps to change. This is biblical, practical steps to have God change you in your life. Remember, we're participating in it. Number one, believe that change is possible. Believe that change is possible. This is for you. You must believe it. Now, as I said before, it doesn't mean that it's perfect, and it doesn't mean without doubts. I love the man in Mark chapter 9 who comes to Jesus, and he asking Jesus to heal his son, and Jesus says, do you believe? And the man says, I believe. Help my unbelief. I love it because it's completely honest. There were some doubts. There were some questions. And yet, did Jesus say, I'm not going to heal your son because you have some doubts and questions? No, Jesus healed the man's son. You have to have faith to believe, but it's not important how much faith you have. The important question is, who is your faith in? Jesus says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. So come with all your questions, come with all your doubts, come with all your concerns, but believe that Jesus died for you and he can change you. And he can do a work in you. Second, number two, deal with sin in your life. You want to change? Confess your sin to the Lord. When you become a Christian, maybe some of you as a kid, you um, prayed for Jesus to come into your heart. And, and he did through his spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside you. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, we read, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Grieving the Holy Spirit of God is doing things that he doesn't want you to do. That's sins of commission. Think back on this past week. Was there anything that was presented to you? You had a decision to make. You could do this thing or not do this thing. You know that that thing was sin. You know that it was wrong. And yet, 
you decided to do it. That grieves the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside you. Confess that to him. Confess that to him now. Second type of sin that we read in the scriptures is what's called quenching the Spirit of God. There's a short little verse in, um, I think I got the reference wrong, the last service, but it's 1 Thessalonians. It's in 1 Thessalonians toward the end. It says this, uh, do not quench the Spirit of God. Quenching the Spirit of God is not doing the things that He asks you to do. And so you get on an airplane, you sit down, and God's Spirit is telling you, share your faith to the person sitting next to you. He's like, God, I'm tired today. God, I don't want to have this conversation with this person. Just to be honest, I don't really care about this person. And so just get off my back, God. That's quenching the Spirit of God, not doing what He asks you to do. Confess that as sin. Sins of commission, what you commit, and sins of omission, not doing what you are called to do. Confess those sins to to the Lord. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess your sin to him. Now, maybe some of you have a problem with unforgiveness in your heart. Maybe you don't even know that you do. Well, I challenge you today, later on this afternoon, just get with God, you and him. You could do it now if you want. Um, And just ask the Holy Spirit. He's a person, you know. Ask the Holy Spirit, reveal to me anybody that I need to forgive in my life and see who he brings up. And when he brings it up, forgive, confess sin. Practical, biblical ways we allow God to change us. Believe that change is possible. Deal with sin in your life. Here's number three. Ask God to change you. Ask him to change you. Jesus says, you have not because you ask not. Jesus tells the story of the persistent widow who comes to the unjust judge and keeps pursuing justice, and he keeps denying her. But she keeps coming to him, she keeps going to him, she keeps pleading with him, and finally, just to get her off his back, he gives her the justice that she deserved. Jesus says, how much did your loving Heavenly Father give all good things to those who asked? Go to him. He's not the unjust God. He's the good God, loving God, just God. Go to him. Go to him. Go to him. Maybe some of you are struggling with addiction and you've even stopped asking God to help you. Or maybe, maybe you have a child that's dealing with an addiction and, and, and you're praying and praying and praying. You feel like the prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Keep asking. Keep asking. Keep asking. Biblical way to change. Persistent prayer. Asking the Lord to change Number four, and this is the hardest, this last one. This is the hardest because this will expose you. It's to ask others to help you. We are part of a church community. It's not a showcase for the sinless. It's a hospital for the hurting. It's a place that we come together to help one another. It's your small group that you would be able to open up to a group of people about your real life struggles and they would be able to come alongside and help you and pray with you and pray for you and strengthen you in this life. We don't want to do it though because we feel shame, don't we? We want to, we want to have it all together. We want to be a mature Christian. We, we don't want anybody to look down on us and so we'll just um, we'll hide it. We just started a new uh, group at our campus in Plano, a sex addiction recovery group. And uh, there's a group of guys that come together and meet. And uh, there's an openness and honesty 
a non-judgmental attitude where guys are coming together to pursue purity and they're going to strengthen one another for that walk. Most of us don't want to do that. It takes a level of vulnerability. But here's the problem. When we don't do that, when we keep it in the dark and we think we're saving face, we keep it in the dark. The devil has power in the darkness. And that's where you really get beat up. You think and you, people are thinking you're all good. Devil's beating you up. You're worthless. You call yourself a Christian. You think Jesus really loves you. You're such a disappointment. Keep that in the dark. Keep it in the dark. You know what John tells us? John says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. It's the opposite thing that we want to do. It goes against our nature, but expose it, because in the light, the devil has to flee. It's a beautiful thing. Then we have fellowship with each other. We encourage one another. The blood of Jesus forgives us for our sins. We're walking in the life that God has called us to walk in. These are biblical steps to change. By the way, that verse is 1 John 1, 6 and 7. Okay. Number two. God's love changes the way that you love. First, you don't love the world. And we see this in 1 John chapter 2. Grab your Bible, your device, go to 1 John chapter 2, because I want to parse this out a little bit. Starting at verse 15. says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now hold on. Now what is the world? Because there's a lot of good things in the world. God made the world in six days and he said, it's all good. It was good. So what is John talking about in the world that we are not to love? Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So in the text, verse 16, he explains, John, what the world is that he's talking about, not to love. The first one is, you see it in the text, desires of the flesh. Desires of the flesh. This is the desire that you have within you to do that which is wrong because it brings pleasure to you, okay? It's uh, at the extreme, it's hedonism, where it says, um, if it feels good, do it, okay? And there's a pleasure that you seek, and it doesn't matter if it hurts uh, people around you, doesn't matter if it hurts even yourself, it's going to bring some amount of pleasure. This is uh, the desires of the flesh, okay? Um, when I was in high school, uh, one night I couldn't sleep, and I went up to the kitchen, and um, there was an unopened, brand new box of Little Debbie oatmeal cream pies, you know. And um, I saw that box there, and, and I thought, uh, that should be in my room. And so I, I took it back to my room, and by the morning, somehow, all the oatmeal cream pies were gone. And uh, that's a true story. Now, last week, I told the Plano campus the same story, but I told them about uh, Swiss cake rolls. You know Swiss cake rolls, little Debbie? And you say, well, which one's true, Pastor Steve? Well, they're both true. Um, and on the same night. So, uh, so that's just a fun way. We can always joke at gluttony, right? And uh, high sugar content and, 
and, and that's, a, that's a very low-level type sin. It's not exposing myself, right? It's, um, it's, it's, it's reality, though. It's illustrative of the fact that there are some things that we do in life that if we overdo it, it is evil. And our flesh has a tendency to overdo things because it's seeking pleasure for ourselves. There's pleasure in it. Now, there are other things. There are other things available to us that we should stay far away from. We should walk away from. You know, when I was in high school, we'd go to a Bible camp and a youth camp, and one of the questions that always came up with the teachers and the preachers and the people that were with the kids, and I was one of the kids, and the question was, well, in a relationship with a girl, how far is too far? You know, can we kiss? Can we hold hands? I mean, what's the line that we shouldn't cross, right? And I always wanted to get that line uh, from whoever was the teacher. Don't leave me up here. How many people asked that question? You, you want to, two people. Okay, great. And, um, and so, but here's the thing. That was the wrong question. That was the wrong question. The question shouldn't be, how close can I get to sin? The question should be, how can I stay as far away from it as possible in our pursuit of purity? That's another example. The flesh is going to get in there, and it's going to take you right to the front door of sin. So don't love that. Second thing, desires of the eyes. Now this builds on the desires of the flesh, but this speaks specifically of lust, of the pleasure and the pursuit um, of that which brings a satisfaction through lust and envy and jealousy. So there's the sexual side of it, but there's the jealousy part of the eyes that you see that which you don't have and you desire to grab it and have it. Then the last one, this is a really interesting word that's used for pride of life. Pride of life. The word is alizonea. It's a boasting, arrogant display uh, it can literally be translated making empty boasts about having the cures to rid people of all their ills. That's the pride of life. Don't love it. Don't love the world. There's pride of life all over the place. That, that, it, the world is going to have answers for you. It boasts, it, you want to take care of all your needs? The world's got your answers. Let me give you a couple of them, okay? You feel a lack of satisfaction? A lack of fulfillment in your life? You know what will take care of that? Stuff. Get as much stuff as you can. Get as much money as possible. Go on the best vacations possible. If you get all that, if you achieve all that, then you will be happy. Then you will be fulfilled. Now, there's two groups of people that understand the lie of that. Terminally ill people, they get it. And you know who else? Billionaires. Billionaires understand. You're like, well, how do billionaires understand it? They're the people that are kind of like greedy and stuff. Aren't they getting as much as they can? Here's how they understand it, because they're at the top. They're at the top, and they don't feel any different than when they're at the bottom. They can go anywhere. They can eat anything. They can do anything. They can, whenever they want it, and they realize that there's still an emptiness. And Mark Cuban has a quote that he realized when he got to a billion um, that... Um, the, the most important thing he said was time. His thing was time. He's not a Christian as far as I know, but he realized it wasn't stuff. It wasn't stuff. How about this pride of life promise? This is the pride of life uh, promise. It's um, the truth. 
the world says it has truth. But here's the truth. It comes from government on down. It comes from our culture all around us. It comes from the messages that we see. It comes from the smartphone in your pocket. It's, um, here's what's important. Here's who's important. Here's how you should live, and here's how you should act. And, um, and if not, you're going to be canceled. Nobody wants to be canceled. And so you think this way. Uh, the pride of life. No, pride isn't a sin. Pride is what we're proud of. And we're proud of anything that we want to be proud of. And this is the White House during this month. It's a symbol of that. This is the promise of the pride of life. You say, well, man, that's terrible. That's, well, 2015, it was the same thing. They lit up the White House in the same exact way. And, uh, and I'm not even talking about uh, gay marriage, trans stuff, any of that, divorce rate. I'm not talking about all the, it's all the same. It's the pride of life. It's the arrogant boast that says, we have the answers for you. Don't love it, John says. Don't love it. This promise of the pride of life goes back all the way to the garden when the devil speaks to Adam and Eve. And he says, um, do you remember what he said? Did God really say not to eat of that fruit? Take it. You're worth it. It's your truth. Don't love the world, Christian. There's good things in the world. God calls his children to enjoy the blessings that he gives, but be careful of these three realities of the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So, okay, pastor, what should I love then? What should I love? The answer for that can be found in Revelation chapter 5. Turn over to Revelation chapter 5. Now, John, the son of thunder, was with Jesus. He saw Jesus crucified. He witnessed Jesus rising from the dead. He's alive. It changed John's life forever. He became the disciple of love. He wrote the gospel of John. He wrote the letters to the churches. And then he receives a final revelation from his best friend, Jesus. Except Jesus is glorified. He's not just simply a son of man. He's son of God. And you can read the description of him in the beginning of the book of Revelation. And in chapter 4, Jesus allows John to see into the very throne room of heaven. And you can read all about it. It's an amazing thing. God's on the throne. Angels are around the throne singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then in chapter 5, a scene begins to play out in heaven. And here we get to see John former son of thunder, now son of love, his heart that he has to love the things that God loves. Let me show it to you. Look at verse 1. Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. There's a lot of symbols, there's a lot of meaning that isn't immediately available to us today unless we dig in a little more greater. And, and here it's God on the throne, and he's got this scroll. The scroll has seven seals on it. That's the perfect number, number of perfection, number of God. And so the scroll has words on it. This is the perfect word of God. This is um, the will of God. This is the salvation of God. This is the goodness of God. This is the victory of God. This is what it's symbolic of, okay? You with me? Verse 2, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? 
Who can bring about the promises of God? Who can bring about the salvation of God? Who can bring about the joys and goodness of God and his conquering over sin, death, and the devil? Who can do it? And they looked around, verse 3. No one in heaven, no archangel, no one on earth, no king, and no one under the earth, no demonic power was able to open the scroll or look into it. Now look at, look at, verse 4. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John begins to weep because the salvation of God isn't possible. Because the will of God won't come about. Because uh, the goodness of God conquering sin, death, and the devil will not happen the things of God will not come about, and that breaks John's heart. Christian, I pray that God would change us to love the things that he loves. Well, what happens? We've got to finish, right? Verse 5, one of the elders taps him on the shoulder, says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of Judah, that's the promised Messiah of Israel. There he is, the lion. And he looks, verse 6, And between the throne of God and the four living creatures surrounding and the elders around, I saw a lamb standing. So a lamb comes from the throne of God. Lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is the Lion of Judah, but now looks like a lamb. Who is that, by the way? Jesus. And he comes out, verse 7, And when he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's Jesus. That's what he does through his death on the cross. That's what he does for you and the forgiveness of sins. That's what he does to bring about the whole mighty kingdom of God and the proclamations of God and the goodness of God and the justice of God. And that is Jesus. And you're telling me the one who could take the scroll and open it up and bring the kingdom of God to fruition, he can't change your life? Ask him. It's an amazing picture of our Savior, Jesus. And that's how, this is how we are changed, by the way. We are changed, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, from one glory to another, from one glory to another glory, when we see Jesus and our affections are stirred for him. It's not just that we buckle down and keep our lists of do's and don'ts, it's because we see Jesus and our affections are stirred, and it changes our life. Okay, last page. This goes fast. But John says so much about love, and I just want to give you five facts from the love of God, about the love of God from John, um, and I pray that this will help assist you as you let God's love change you, that you remember what love really is in the perspective of God. Number one, love is not dependent on feelings. 
It is a decision. It's a decision. And maybe you're here today, husband, wife, and you need to hear this because you don't feel, if you're honest, the exact same way you felt about your spouse when you first laid eyes on each other, okay? And there's going to be a different feeling. And even if you're madly in love, you remember this, love isn't a feeling, right? It's a decision. John says this in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. He says this in verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And so see, the love of God is described as a decision to do what God asks you to do. Love is not dependent on feelings. They can go up and they can go down and they can disappear. It's a decision. Number two, love isn't a given it's a byproduct of spiritual growth. It's not just going to happen. You have to participate in it. That's what we've talked about. It's going to happen specifically when you see Jesus and your affections are changed, and that's when growth happens. So that's why we say get to know Jesus. Study the Word of God so that your affections are stirred and love begins to grow in you. Number three, love doesn't give a pass to sin. No, it pursues and proclaims the truth. This is one of the lies um, that we have in our culture today. It's that if you love somebody, you will let them do whatever they want. Sometimes the most unloving thing is not telling somebody the truth. You ever thought about that? Has anybody ever had to practice tough love? Tough love? It's biblical. It's speaking the truth in love. That's what we're commanded to do as believers. And so if you, you might think, man, I just love the person. Just let them do what they want. No, that's not loving people. Loving means you bring the truth. Not in a harsh way, not in a way that's dismissive, but with an open and honest and loving heart, you're going to share the truth. Number four, love is the language of a Christian. Jesus said this in John's Gospel, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is to be our language. And um, you can lose your temper, but remember, the way that you speak makes a difference. Someone cuts you off on the road, what you say when you open your mouth makes a difference. It will be a demonstration of the reality of you being a disciple of Jesus or not. Number five. We'll end with this. Love has face-to-face -face interactions. At the end of 2 John and 3 John, John essentially says the same thing. Let me read from 2 John, verse 12. He says this, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face -face so that our joy may be complete. Man, do we need to hear this word in our day and age today. You can show some love on social media. You can love someone through a text, but there's nothing like someone who shows up and is face-to-face -face with someone who needs them. True love is face-to-face -face love. And, um, and I'm praying that you have that in your life and that you can be an op open and honest with them. You can walk in the light as God works to change you, change me, change us for the glory of God.